You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus trail cameras please go to exodusoutdoorgear.com and take advantage of the nine finger discount when checking out use the discount code nine fingers that's the number nine followed by the word fingers and you can save twenty dollars off your trail camera purchase now today we have a kick-ass podcast and i say i say that like i say every week but it's a really good podcast because this is the time of year that a lot of guys are turning their preparation into overdrive especially if they're planning on going on an out-of-state hunt somewhere and today we're going to be talking with a gentleman named Clayton Bond and Clayton basically runs us through his planning and preparation and a couple stories that he's had on the past three or four years worth of -of out-of-state hunts um, specifically public land in Kentucky so that's what today's podcast is about we break down the planning we the the travel the logistics you know everything that is involved in taking a trip out of state for a week-long period dedicating a week uh, to his hunts and uh, so we, basically we're just breaking it down and uh, we, we share some pretty cool stories at the end now deer lab right if you don't know what deer lab is it's very simple you need to go to deerlab.com and read about everything that they offer now i'm going to give you my version of what deer lab is okay so I have my trail cameras out soaking right now, right? They're collecting information. They're collecting pictures of deer that I want to go hunt. Now, as soon as I go get those pictures out of my trail cameras, I will bring them back. I'll upload them into Deer Lab. And Deer Lab will tell me, they'll take all the information like wind direction, barometric pressure, um, time of day, uh, what the sunrise, sunset, moonrise, you know, moon moon phase was it calculates that all of that and basically then what i can do is i can take pictures of uh, specific bucks uh, when when those bucks when when those specific bucks hit that and then what they do it it, i can calculate it and i can forecast based off of uh, weather patterns and wind direction and whatever when 
particular deer will be visiting particular areas of the farm. Now, this is great during the rut, especially if you have like three or four or five years of history with a particular deer. You can use that information. You can say, okay, well, I've had a trail camera in this pinch point for the last three years, and every northwest wind on a, uh, you know, every northwest wind, he's going to come through. Or every south southwest wind, he goes to a different part of the farm. And what you're doing there is you're using that information to forecast where these particular bucks will be, and that puts you one step ahead of them uh, when you're trying to uh, locate and kill a mature whitetail. So uh, that is one of the reasons why I love Deer Lab and kind of just a side note the other reason i really like deer lab is because it's a great place for me to keep all of my trail camera pictures it's organized it's just not a giant folder that says deer pics on uh, your desktop and uh you're you don't have to scroll through you can label label the pictures with particular names of the deer and then you can like compare them year after year you can watch them grow and uh look for patterns so go to deerlab.com slash nine fingers and you can sign up for a free 30-day trial period i strongly suggest doing that um, especially before this hunting season enter in all your past trail camera photos and use that software to calculate uh, maybe uh, maybe a future hunt uh, with one of these deer that you've been chasing for a while. So DeerLab.com, check it out. Now, I, I typically talk way too long on these podcasts, but if you haven't already, please take advantage of the Nine Finger Chronicles discount for QDMA. Uh, all you have to do is go and sign up for a yearly membership, enter the promo code nine finger just nine finger the number nine and the word finger and you will save ten dollars which puts an annual membership to twenty five dollars so twenty five dollars and you can be part of one of the greatest whitetail organizations that there are uh that there is so uh go and do that and now i'm really done talking so let's get into today's I don't even know, Hunter Profile Public Land Out-of-State Hunt Podcast with Clayton Bond. All right, everybody, on the phone with me today, Mr. Clayton Bond. How you doing, man? Good, brother. How are you? Oh, I can't complain. Uh, I don't know. I'm I really, 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 really bad. I don't know how many reallys that is, but I really badly want to go check my trail cameras, but I know I probably shouldn't. Do you have trail cameras out right now? Yeah, I do. I've got I've got four out on a uh, a really small lease that I just got up in Lincoln County, Kentucky. Uh, two of them are cell phone cameras, so I see what's on those. But I've got two others that are that are in spots that I'm honestly a little bit more excited about. So I'm itching to go get my fingers on those, and they've been soaking for about a month now. So I'm ready to go go pull those. Right. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Like I love shed hunting and I love hunting, but there's something about the anticipation of checking a trail camera card that just gets me freaking jack, man. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Especially this time of year when you can kind of tell what a buck's going to turn into. Yeah. But then you, you actually, you know, you, you 
you're even more excited the next time that you go pull that card to see the additional inches that he's put on. Right, right. That and on top of, you know, like uh, we're going to get into probably a little story of a, a bad shot on a buck, right? So um, yeah. there's always that that uh, mystery of whether or not uh, a specific deer that you watched all last year or two years or three years in a row kind of shows back up. And I, I love it when I get the opportunity to get a trail camera picture of a buck from the previous year. And then this year he shows up again and he's bigger or he put on some junk or, you know, another point or, you know, and you can tell because of the characteristics of the antler or maybe he's got a split ear or you're just like, man, that's that buck. He's a stud. He blew up. I'm going to go after him. There's something about that that uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the whole whitetail process. Oh, absolutely, man. All right. So you got trail cameras out. Today we're going to talk about public land hunting and, excuse me, (coughs) holy shit, I choked on a little piece (laughs) of carrot. Okay, (laughs) I think I'll leave that in. Anyway, um, specifically what we're going to talk about today is going to a different state or taking a trip to go uh, hunt some public ground, you know, like an out-of-state trip or whatnot. But before we get into that, why don't you tell everybody where you're from exactly and what do you do for a living? Sure. So I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee about four or five weeks ago. So I am fresh uh, back to Tennessee for the second time, this time on the eastern part of the state. And I work for an industrial automation company and manage a team of uh, technical sales reps. Gotcha. Gotcha. So did you move back to Tennessee? Where were you living before Tennessee? Before Tennessee, I was in South Carolina for the last about four and a half years. And then before that, I was in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, which is about an hour west of Nashville, right right there in the heart of western kentucky and christian county and all that um where i was in the army at fort campbell okay all right so you're in the army all right so you 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 moved around a little bit but you ended up now uh around the knoxville tennessee area now my question is how is the deer hunting in knoxville tennessee in the area that you kind of live in so far from what i've gathered I haven't gotten a whole a whole bunch of time to dig in yet. Well, I, I take that back. I've already got two different places to hunt right in the local area. But uh, just from tar- talking to some a few people that I've that I've met just through work and stuff, um, the deer numbers aren't super high uh, where we're at in eastern Tennessee. Um, and there's there's nothing super big running around. I think every once in a while a deer in the 130s, 140s is is definitely something to brag about. Okay. What about just the, from what I've gathered so far? Gotcha. What about the quality, or excuse me, the quantity? Not not a super heavy uh, in terms of deer numbers. From what I've heard, the, the pretty much the further west that you get in the state, the, the numbers and the quality are both going to start to pick up. Gotcha. So where you where you're currently living? What's the terrain like? And that probably has something to do with the lower numbers and and lower, I guess, quality of bucks. Sure. Basically, uh, I'd say like the 
the eastern quarter of the state of Tennessee is all really, really hilly, uh, even into somewhat mountainous terrain as you get a little bit closer to the Smoky Mountains. Um, but there's some areas kind of down in the, in the flatter lying areas that do have some ag and are a little bit more flat with a little bit more gently rolling hills and terrain. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, uh, you moved up there, you got a couple, uh, you got a couple pieces of property uh, to hunt and you did it fairly quickly. Tell me your, yeah. what, what's your approach? I, I, I always like to hear how others approach, sure. uh, you know, a landowner or, or someone, what do you, what do you do? How do you, how, what approach do you take when trying to get property? Oh man. So I'm in, I'm in professional sales as is. So I, it's something that I, yeah, I've, I've kind of brought out of my professional career into my deer hunting career just in the last year or two. But really before I approach a landowner and the way that I go about finding a property to, to, to talk about asking permission to hunt on is I do a lot of map recon first and usually I'll drive past it once or twice. Um, and I'll use like an Onyx or a hunt stand or one of the, one of the map services out there to kind of locate a piece of property that looks good. Like it may have some potential, even if it's a smaller property in size, a lot of times those are the ones that get overlooked by other hunters and there's not a lot of people asking for permission to hunt on them, but if it's in a key spot, it can be really productive. So, the way that I go about it is I'll get a hold of a, a property owner's name, basically via one of these map services and the, the parcel identify feature. And then I'll, I'll backtrack and jump into the white pages app um, and basically hunt down this person's name, contact number, address, basically anything that I can get. And then I'll usually contact them before I actually show up and knock on their door. So I'll, I'll give them a call and introduce myself and, Usually they, they recognize my out-of-state number. My personal phone is not doesn't have the same area code of the area that I'm in right now. So they're kind of skeptical when they answer the phone at first. But when I tell them that I just moved to the area and, you know, ask them if I can stop by to have a chat with them about their property, most people are pretty open to it. Yeah. And once I meet them in person and introduce myself and they, they kind of get the, get the vibe that I'm not a, I'm not a crackhead, they uh, – they're usually pretty open to a conversation and then I'll just casually throw in that I'm looking for somewhere to, to bow hunt and their property was interesting to me. And most of the time people are, I mean, they're really nice about it. And of the three or four times I've, I've contacted somebody here in the East Tennessee area, I've gotten permission twice out of four times. So well, that's I'm batting 500. That's pretty good. Yeah. Now in the past, do you find that it is better or increases your odds to get on a property if you call first, then show up, as opposed to just showing up at their front door? I would definitely recommend reaching out first in some way, whether it be um, sending them a letter and just saying that you're going to drop by at some point in the future or getting them on the phone and, and just kind of subtly hitting, hitting at what you may be, really be after, but not you know, fully asking them on the phone to kind of, it, it, it definitely helps with a comfort factor. If I was a landowner and, you know, somebody approached me about hunting and I, I was out mowing my grass and they flagged me down or walked up to me or something like that, it'd probably freak me out a little bit and I'd, I'd be a lot more apt to say no. Right. Right. And that's, that's almost the opposite of what I, my experience was every, almost every property. Really? Yeah. For, for some reason, if I call first, and and maybe ask about 
you know, hunting rights or something like that. Almost everyone, and it could just all be coincidence, right? But every person, every person's been like, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but a majority of them have said, no, uh, you know, I, I, I got somebody else on it or, you know, whatever they're, whatever they, they tell me, but the answer is no, as opposed to knocking on the door. I feel me personally, my success rate goes way up. When I make the introduction in person and ask all at the same yeah. time. Gotcha. And when I when I get somebody on the phone beforehand, I I don't come out and and really say what I'm after. I I kind of beat around it a little bit and and try to definitely ask that per, ask that question and bring up the actual topic of hunting. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm there in person. Okay. So I'm curious, how does that conversation go then? Uh, the, the original, uh, phone call to them. I mean, you're not asking about what your ultimate goal is. Are you like, you're just calling out of the blue to chit chat with them a little bit? Yeah. I, I basically say, Hey, I just moved into the area. and I, I, I noticed your property as I drove past it, uh, uh, several times on my way to and from work or something like that. And, you know, I really think it's a beautiful property. I'd be interested in swinging by and just learning a little bit more about it and discussing it a little bit with you if you'd be open to that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. And it's worked for you. And most people are like, yeah, sure. Come on by. We've been here since 1940 or 1950 or 1960 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Uh, have you ever had anybody just be like, okay, creep, uh, no, I don't want you stopping by, calling me out of the blue and stopping by my house? Um, no, I've had people ask though afterwards, like, so what do you really want? Yeah. Especially if it's like a younger, a younger person on the phone, they, they tend to get to that a lot quicker. Yeah. Whereas if it's an older property owner that I get on the phone, they're more like, yeah, come on by and shoot the fat. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. And I've, I've always found that the older the individual is that I'm talking with, the more talking I'll have to do and just more BS as opposed to, you know, I think a young, sure. a younger person, their time is more precious, meaning they have, they got shit to do. So, you know, it's just like cut, cut the, cut to the chase. What do you want? Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in hunting your property. Yes or no. So, right. Cool. All right. So you got some property to hunt, but Today's today's kind of main topic, uh, you know, we've kind of spent the time working up up here up to this, but the main topic of this podcast is about out of state hunting, right? So you can't you like to hunt, and what is the bag limit in Tennessee for for uh, a, a, I guess a resident hunter? I believe it's two bucks a season. Mm-hmm. All right. So my question to you is why, what are some of the reasons or why are you deciding to take an out-of-state trip? Sure, great question. Um, a lot of it is just to dedicate a week of my life every fall to just doing nothing but hunting. If I'm, if I'm around the house, there's other stuff that's going to be getting done. I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking a, work, a week of work off and not knocking out any kind of honeydews or anything like that, but it's, it's nice to just get away from the, get away from the house and dedicate a week to dedicating, you know, as much time as possible in a deer stand during the rut. Right. Right. And so next question is when, how many out of state trips have you been on? 
I've done at this point, probably three or four complete out of state trips. Uh, really three of those in the last three years being the most serious ones and, and on public ground specifically. Right. So when this all, when this idea first popped into your head, um, and I know you kind of already mentioned that it's just to go out and dedicate a week to hunting, but there, ha- there there's got to be a, something a little bit more or, or another trigger that allows you that, oh, you know, sure. that says, man, I want to go out and do something different. What was that? Just going to, to a large and where we, where we typically go is, is finding, you know, a several thousand acre, if not significantly larger than that piece of public to where you can really just kind of go out and, and get away from, get away from a ton of people and get on a big piece of property with the, obviously the potential to, to kill bigger deer and, and more mature deer than you can where you're from. So in, in my case, that was South Carolina, which I know Michigan gets the rap of being a, you know, a, a super pressured state, but in South Carolina, obviously we have got a, a super long deer season and a lot of people out there that just kill and kill and kill deer. You can, you can kill like five bucks and unlimited does basically. And then parts of the state, the, uh, the rifle season is open from August 15th through January 1st to give you an idea. Okay. Okay. Um, so when I was living in South Carolina, me and a group of buddies got together and we're like, Hey, we need, to, we need to get out of here and go chase something a little bit different. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that was, that was one of the triggers then. Now there's obviously, you don't just throw your bow or your gun into your truck and drive to the next state and hunt or wherever, uh, wherever you were at. There's a lot of, uh, um, preparation and planning and organization and all this stuff that has to happen before you end up going to that other state. So tell me when, when starting this process, I, where do you start at? What's the, and then we'll go from there. What's the first thing that you do when you determine, okay, I want to go hunt out of state. What's the first thing that you do? The, the really the first step that I've that I've taken is is identifying an area that I just want to look in for somewhere to hunt right so the last few years we've kind of had a focus on the, the western Kentucky okay. area all right so, so locating really locating the, the area in the state is the first thing then right exactly and then you got to find the ground to hunt okay so even before that, uh, as a as a non-resident to that state, are you looking into any of the rules and regulations to see if hunting there is different or even available for a out-of-state hunter? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I had some experience hunting in Kentucky, so I I knew that you know it's an over-the-counter state and and it's a one-buck state and things like that. But that would be definitely if I, you know, one of the things that I want to do in the next few years is do either like Kansas or Nebraska. And I know nothing about the hunting regulations in those states. So I, I would pour into that first yeah. and just kind of figure out what it would take to get a tag, things like that. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, you've identified the area or the state that you that you want to hunt. You know, when people say, oh, I want to go hunt Iowa. Well, there's a whole bunch of places in Iowa a guy could hunt. You know, there's a whole bunch of places in probably Kentucky or 
Kansas or Nebraska or wherever a guy wants to hunt, how do you narrow down in that state where you want to hunt? A lot of internet research. Um, so I've, I've done a lot of just the internet looking and you can find old articles written in North American whitetail or Bowhunter magazine or different places like that where guys, uh, we'll break down, you know, top Pope and Young counties in Kentucky or Iowa, for example, or Ohio or wherever. And that's a, that's a good place to start where you can look at some actual statistical data and say, all right, this, this county or this region or this area of the state is, is prone to potentially producing bigger deer, if, if that's what you're looking for. Right, right. So does the area determine what your looking for or does what you're looking for determine what area you're going to i'd say a little bit of both so i'm i'm going to do the research on the 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 pope and young data and and things like that but then also i'm going to want to find a property to hunt that kind of matches what i'm looking for which is a, a larger piece of ground that i can get pretty far off the grid and get back to where the you know the average weekend warrior isn't going isn't going to walk to yeah yeah so okay so you said you said now you've kind of you're you're using internet research you're using maps tell me specifically kind of i mean is it google maps is it onyx i mean it's this is public you're you're only focused on public ground right yeah okay so that kind of kind of narrows it down right yeah, I, I, there's a, a function of the, the Onyx program where it will actually identify public ground and it has an overlay for it um, that has been really helpful in just identifying pieces of government-owned land, whether it be state, federal, or, or some other form of government. Yep. Um, and, it, and it highlights it for you, and it's easy to, easy to see the properties that stick out and fit an area that could potentially be public and potentially open to hunting. Gotcha. So once you, once you find it there, then you've got to backtrack to like a, a Kentucky DNR fishing game website or a Tennessee wildlife resources agency website and do the homework on that specific property that you found to see if it's generally open during archery season or open during all hunting seasons or a draw only place, things like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what are you looking for? A general or a draw? Um, typically what I find to be the best and that what I, what I like to look for is the archery, either the archery only areas or the archery only areas that have like a, a draw associated for rifle or muzzle loader or shotgun. Um, that way, you know, you're getting a property that, you know, isn't hit hard by the orange army every year. Gotcha. Gotcha. So then, so you've kind of used the, these maps to lo- locate the greater area or the piece of public land. Then from there, what's happening? So once, once I've kind of got it narrowed down to uh, you know, a geographic region and then either a WMA or a national wildlife uh, recreation area, national recreation area or, whatever number of different, you know, entities it could be, then it's really kind of diving in and, and dissecting where I even start looking for 
for a hunt. And then obviously there's other things that go along with that. Like, where am I going to stay? Where am I going to eat? Um, how am I going to access the property? Things like that. So really, you know, when I, when I decide, Hey, I'm going to this area of Western Kentucky or Illinois or wherever, the first thing that that I'm going to do is identify the piece of property and then, and then start backwards planning off of that. So that really the second big step I would take is, all right, where am I going to stay? Where am I going to rest at night? Um, one of the things that I've, that I've found pretty useful in identifying a place to do that is like vacation rental by owner. Okay. Um, and like, uh, there's another one that's really similar. I think it's called home away. And it's just where like normal people, like kind of like an Airbnb type thing will rent out their house, normal house. So I'm not staying in a, like a flea bag hotel room, which I've done before. Um, or in a, you know, a, a tent in a campground, all these things, you know, they could be options, but I, I found that, you know, and what fits the budget really well is these VRBOs and it, it yep. generally is going to cost about the same amount as a, a decent motel room would. Yeah. We found that out firsthand. Actually, we went on a vacation uh, in June, first of June this year and uh, out in California. And when all the hotels in the area were $250, dollars a night if not uh i'd say maybe 190 up into the 300 range per night we found some airbnbs for oh that 100 to 150 dollar price range so and yeah you couldn't find a hotel for that price in that area sure it always it's always worth looking around for stuff like that i don't think it's a lot of i don't think a lot of hunters think about that when they're when they're traveling to hunt usually it's all i got to you know, I got to stay in a, a dirt bag motel where I'm going to sleep on top of the covers type thing. Right. Which is what we always did when we'd go to, go to Arkansas to go duck hunting in the, you know, in the off season. And we're, you know, you're really questioning where you're putting your head at night. <laughs> I mean, have you guys ever thought about doing any type of camping at a local campground or, you know, on sure. some, some guy's field? Uh, and then why have you decided to go with the, like the, the home rental as opposed to camping? Sure. Good question. So the, uh, the camping thing that on year one, three years ago, when we were getting ready to make this trip, um, we were talking about pulling my buddies pull behind camper as there were several pretty big campgrounds in the area. But, uh, I started looking into like hotels and other, and VRBOs and stuff like that. We ended up the first year in a, a ramshackle little, flea bag type motel like i just described and it was actually infested with ladybugs too we later came to find out um but um we basically ruled out camping just because i was like hey look we got a lot of crap that we're hauling around with us right we got probably each had four or five different stand sets that we brought with us and a climber or two and you know three or four times more camo than we actually needed and when I was thinking about all that pre-trip, I was like, there's no way we're fitting all this in a campsite or, a, you know, a, a fifth wheel camper or anything like that. So I was like, it'd be really nice to have a, a solid roof over our head and a full-sized shower and shitter that, that are going to make, you know, nugging it out for a week in yeah. November a lot more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. So then, you know, once you locate a, a place to sleep at night, how how far are you willing to travel between where you're sleeping and where you're hunting? I've never had to travel more than probably 30 minutes. Okay. 
Okay. I, I would consider traveling further. Um, for example, um, I haven't run into this yet, but if, so again, Kentucky's a one buck state, so we're, we're staying in Kentucky, but close to the Tennessee border. Um, and there's a, there's a significant amount of public pretty close in Tennessee as well to where we're hunting. And being a one buck state, if I was to tag out on day one or day two of the trip, I wouldn't want to pack up and go home. Right. I'd, I've already kind of identified, hey, what am I going to do if I tag out on day one or day two to continue to be able to, to hunt in this time that I've got allotted to do it? And, I, you know, it, at that point, I'd have a 45-minute, hour, hour and a half drive to these other areas that I've found, which I would definitely do. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, so right now, though, you're staying roughly about 30 minutes from the time you leave your place to the time you park to start walking to your tree stand? I'd say on average, yeah, it could be a little, depending on where on the property we're going, it's, it's as little as 10 minutes and as, as much as like an hour. So right. I'd say 30 minutes is probably average. As well. Okay. So you've identified, you know, some, some places to stay now it, it kind of comes down to, and you know, especially on the first year, right? On the first year before sure. you've hunted this property, did you go do any boots on the ground scouting? I did. Yeah. So at that point I was, it was about an eight hour drive. And, uh, on year one, I, I basically did a turn and burn over a weekend. I left South Carolina on, uh, I think a Friday night, drove, drove all the way out to, uh, to Western Kentucky and, um, caught a couple hours of sleep and I was so gung ho about it. And I'd already picked out a few spots on the map that I knew I wanted to go. I went and this was the, I think the first weekend, in October, maybe the last weekend in September, I'd already picked out some spots on a map. So I went out there and just went in blind that very, very, very first morning to a spot that I found on the map and walked in and stumbled my way up the tree and had a bunch of deer walk under me that morning. So wait, so you didn't do any scouting you? Well, that was, so to, to caveat on that, I, uh, I spent about two hours up in the tree and then I got down and walked the rest of the day. Okay. So, so were you still hunting at that point? No, I, I just hunted. I basically was just so pumped about getting out there that I got out there and I, I, I hunted that first morning for a couple hours and then I, I had the rest of the day and the next morning dedicated to boots on ground scouting. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Makes sense. So you did, you, you had the opportunity to do some boots on the ground scouting in this, yeah. in this area what were you looking for specifically in order to, you know, cause you know, for example, how big was the area, the entire public land that surrounding this area that you had, I guess the opportunity to hunt, how big was that public ground? 100, 170,000 acres. Okay. So you're not going to hunt 170,000 acres in one season in one, one week. Period, no way. Right. right. So, what were some of the things that you were looking for, uh, not only from the digital scouting standpoint, but from the boots on the ground standpoint too? Sure. So I, I narrowed it down to a general, gosh, I don't know, 25,000 acre chunk right. that I, that I wanted to kind of just say, all right, I'm going to throw a dart and this is where the dart hits. Now I'm going to start looking in that area. And of course, everything looks a lot smaller when you're looking at it on an aerial photo from, you know, five miles above 
above earth type thing. Right. Um, so I really just kind of threw my finger down and said, this looks good. I'm going to start looking around this area. And, and from there, diving in and finding areas that were pretty remote from, from really any types of access is kind of how I started looking at it and picking it apart. And then just throwing some throwing some markers on the map and, and looking at specifically uh, that area is a pretty much ninety five percent wooded. Um, so doing a lot really the, the only way you can look at a map and learn anything is is to to look at a topo map. Um, so looking at a lot of terrain features and breaking down really long ridges that you know would run into the few ag fields that are out there, and then looking for saddles and uh, potential terrain dumps where a bunch of ridges all run together, or a bunch of um, spurs kind of drop down into the same same valley together, that sort of thing, and then and then that is that is where I, I started the the boots on ground research. Gotcha. Okay, so you identified places that you on the digital scouting side of things, and then those were the main focus points when you went to go do the boots on the ground scouting. Yeah. Okay. So when you get to these spots, now you're, you're in the timber, you're, you're actually eye level with all this terrain. What, what are you looking for on a micro level in order to identify maybe a specific tree or a trailhead, you know, a trail or something like that? Yeah. So I really, the, uh, the first year that I went out there, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I knew I was looking for deer sign, right? But uh, I didn't know the, the specific exact terrain features to look for, things like that, which, which came with just hunting that area for a couple years in a row. But, you know, the first time that I went out there, I was like, hey, you know, I know that generally deer are going to cross in saddles or generally, you know, they're going to bed in the thicker creek bottoms or the thicker, thicker hillsides, that sort of thing. So those are the areas that I targeted initially. And then I, when I was getting out there and, you know, getting to this blip that I'd put on my, on my map app, I'd get out there and just look for, you know, all sorts of deer signs. So, I mean, is there, are there, are there oak trees there? Are there old scrapes from last year? Is there old rub lines? Can I actually see a trail of any sort? Um, and that's kind of where I, where I really started. Okay. All right. So then when when you're locating these areas, do you rank anything? I mean, for me, when it comes to hunting, man, I, especially the rut, I am a huge fan of pinch points. Like if I had the opportunity to hunt maybe a bedding area or a travel corridor or a pinch point or something like that, for some reason, my preference is to go try to find a pinch point, some kind of pinch point. Do you have any type of preference where you're sitting or maybe like a, I'm going to start here first or like when you're putting your plan together, I'm going to start at this location first and then I'm going to try to go to this location and so forth and so on. Oh, for sure. The, uh, the, the first thing that I look at on an aerial photo or a topo map, especially, especially now after hunting this place for a little while and for that matter, anywhere else, I'm right there with you, man. I, I love pinch points and, hands down love them the most during the rut. Yeah. That's, that is what I, what I target the most now. Um, the, the food sources can be, can be difficult to locate in the terrain that I'm hunting as 
you've got a forest full of trees and finding the one that's dropping the acorns can be, uh, can be difficult at times. Right. Um, but if you know, if you know where those bedding areas are at and you can locate a funnel that is, is between, you know, two potential bedding areas or a potential bedding area and a potential food source or just a, a potential, you know, funnel that the deer, no matter what, if they come through that area, they have to go through this area. That's gold. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now, what about, um, what about actual trees? You know, are you, when you go in there initially, are you putting like on your, your map app, like a, a little ping that says, I'm, I'm coming here. I'm going to this exact tree. Or is that something that you figure out during the hunt? Yes and no. I've done a little bit of both. Um, as the, so this is the fourth year in a row, I'll be going back to the same place and it's progressed a little bit more and more each year. So the first year was, you know, I'm going to throw a pin on this area. This is a good looking saddle. This is a good looking ridge line. This is a good looking corner. You know, that, that is where it started. And then I think year two and year, year two, we didn't scout. We didn't go out on a scouting trip year three we did go out and scout and I think I hung three or four stands about a month before the actual rotation came around. Okay. So then with, you know, with that said, uh, it sounds to me like every year you're, you know, you set up, you refine that location. So, you know, okay, well I see I'm in the right area, but I need to tweak my set. 50, 60, 70 yep. yards up to where I, I'm seeing the deer movement. Exactly. All right. And then, uh, you know, when I think this is the last year we're going to hunt this place and, and we keep going back because we've had pretty good success. This is going to be the last year we hunt this property and then it's going to be start the, start the entire process over again. And hopefully we've become better hunters in the last four years by dialing in on this piece of ground to where, it, you know, maybe the next place we go, it takes maybe two or three days to get really good at it or maybe one, one season to get good at it and then and just approve upon it, you know, the next year. Right. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So, so then when you're going, you know, when you start the hunting process, especially on an out of state hunt, because you're, you're limited, right? So for me, I got, sure. you know, I can, you know, if, especially if you're close to home, I should say you can tweak and you can tweak fast knowing that you can hunt closer to home more often, but on an out of state hunt, when you have limited time, how much time do you give a specific location until you bail on it and go to the next one? It's going to depend on, on what I'm seeing. So if I've got, you know, consistently got doe groups coming through, I'm going to, I'm going to stay pretty if there's consistent doe movement there, I'm going to stay pretty, pretty focused to that area, especially, you know, during the rut, knowing that it just takes that right doe to come through. Right. Um, and if I've, if I've seen a mature buck, you know, I'm going to be a little bit more inclined to stay in that area. Um, in terms of being mobile though, I think that's absolutely critical, uh, to, to the game of, you know, short, short hunting trip. You've got to be able to move and get on something. Uh, we've, we've typically hunted out of climbers, um, with the exception of one or two fixed sets that we'll, that we'll put up. Um, 
but in terms of like a a particular spot it's usually uh, we usually give it around a day and then you know days a morning and evening sit in a general area and you know usually i'm with one or two other guys so if, if we're not seeing deer movement in that area or we're not seeing mature deer in that area we're going to relocate gotcha okay so a couple days and then you and then you're uh you're you're out generally speaking yes um last year was the first year we really ran a bunch of cameras on the public that was going to be my and next question that was, yeah. that was yep yeah, it's one that, you know, whenever I tell people that I run trail cameras on public ground, you know, eight hours from the house, you're like, are you just throwing money away? <laughs> you got them secure? But, uh, you know, no. No? Nope. No, I don't. Um, so I I can't remember where I read about it or saw it. It may have been Archery Talk or YouTube or somewhere like that. But a, a guy was talking about hanging cameras on public and, and gave a really detailed thread about how he how he actually can't physically camos up his trail cameras and then hangs them about eight feet up in a tree eight to 12 feet up in a tree yeah and um i so i when i went and scouted i took a climbing stick with me and, and hung the cameras up eight to ten feet up in the tree angled down usually on trails or, or scrapes and it worked it worked like a charm not only did i not have a single camera taken but i didn't have a single picture of another person and I had, I had six cameras up on this piece of ground for over a month and a half. Wow. From the time that I went out and scouted, hung them, and then the first day that we got back to hunt, um, we hunted that morning, picked up cameras, and then checked them all. Awesome. Well, I'm glad none of them got stolen because I've heard horror stories about the guys. Oh, yeah. The guys who hang their, their, their tree stands up or their, uh, their cameras up high. And the dude, like some dude comes by, doesn't have the ability to reach them, but has a chainsaw or an ax, and they just chop down the whole freaking tree <laughs> to get to it. Yep. That's yep. nuts. Cool, man. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about, I guess, the success that you've had on the, some of these out-of-state sure. uh, out hunts. Why don't you share share with us a couple stories? Absolutely. I will definitely do that. So I'll, I'll pretty much just run through everything we've run, we've, we've encountered out there over the last couple of years. And year one, it was me and, and one other guy, a guy that I met in college and, and we were having slugging a few beers, uh, in a college bar in Clemson, South Carolina one night and realized that we'd been climbing the exact same tree on a WMA in South Carolina for, uh, for a season and somehow never run into each other. But we always saw the the climber teeth marks on this, on this pine tree. And it turned out that I was talking to the guy that was climbing my tree and he was talking to the guy that was climbing his tree. <laughs> and, uh, so we've, uh, we've become pretty good friends since and our, our wives are really good friends. So when we, when we take off to go hunt together, it, it usually works out pretty well, but, uh, it was he and I the first year and I went out there by myself and scouted and said, Hey, when we get out here, this is the general area that we need to get, get out to and look at. And I had a spot picked out that I knew I was going to hunt. And um, I think it was on like day three or day four. We'd hunted that area the first day and, and had seen some does and little bucks. But on, on day four of a five or six day hunt, I went back in there and it was um, a spot down in, down low in the, uh, in the scheme of things out there where a bunch of ridges dropped down into the same holler. 
and I had some does move through and about 7:45, I looked up and had a had a really really nice buck working down a draw right towards me and he was walking a trail that some does had walked I knew he was going to come right through and it was I just looked up and I caught one one side of uh, the right side of his rack and I saw it I saw at least four points there and it was a beautiful beautiful chocolate horn buck I was like I'm I'm going to shoot that deer I was started shaking and stood up in the stand and shot him at about 35 or so yards and I knew I hit him a little bit far back and he took off and ran up the hill and then by hill, I mean like almost miniature type mountain, right. uh, probably two or 300 feet in elevation changed almost straight up. Watched the buck run up to the top of it and bed down. I'm like, Man, I, I hit that deer a little bit, a little bit back, but I saw him bed down. Like this, this will be, you know, he should, he should die up there. And uh, so I stayed in the stand another hour or two and was texting with my buddy and he was like, man, I'm, I'm cold as crap. I need to get down and walk around a little bit. So uh, I met him back out at the truck and he was, he was hunting about a mile away from where I was. And, um, so we waited about five hours and went back in to look for this deer and found my arrow and started tracking him. And the, the blood was, blood was pretty spotty, but we followed him up to the top of that ridge and we're easing up there. And, um, let me backtrack a little bit. Right when we found the arrow, we were standing 35 yards from the tree that I'd shot from and, We'd been really quiet getting back in and heard heard something just come absolutely hauling ass down one of the ridges straight towards us. And we both stopped and started looking. Here comes this basket rack eight-pointer just charging straight at us. Like, I thought we were going to get run over. This deer slammed on, finally realized that we weren't other deer and slammed on the brakes about 10 yards away. I, could, I mean, I could see the whites of this thing's eyes when it realized that we were people and not deer. And, uh, we were like, man, that was pretty wild. And I mean, it's, it's noon at this point. And, uh, we get over to the arrow, kind of throw off the fact that we just about got run over by a little deer, little buck and, uh, take a couple steps following the blood trail and hear the same thing start happening again. And we look up and this absolutely magnificent buck comes charging down the hill doing the same thing that the other one did. Evidently there'd been a, a hot doe that had walked through there probably minutes before we'd gotten there. And I mean, this monster, I mean, it's to this day, one of the biggest deer I've ever seen in the woods. Um, ended up scoring grazing about 145 inches and I'll, I'll get there in a second. But this deer chart is charging down the hill and does the same thing. Slams on the brakes about 40 yards away. And my buddy and I are just standing there mouths open, staring at this thing. Finally, the deer realizes that we aren't exactly the doe that I think he thought we were and, and kind of trots off without really no, ever knowing what was going on. Um, and we were like both f absolutely fired up because it was one of the biggest bucks that we'd ever seen in our lives at that point. And uh, so we tracked my deer up to the top of the ridge, get up to the top of the ridge and end up jumping this thing. I'm just tore up about it. Like, man, we're going to have to come back tomorrow. So we go back in there the next morning and made it about 50 yards past where we jumped the buck and, and found him and coyotes had absolutely devoured every bit of meat on this deer. Oh my I mean, every ounce of it minus his head. So all I had was a, was a head with about four or five inches of spine sticking out of it. The rest of it was gone. I mean, when I say gone, it was gone. Like, nothing there but bones wow it was insane 
But uh, so I was I was pretty bummed about that, but glad that I had actually gotten to, to recover the animal um, and and at least find his find his head. And so I tagged that deer and I was done hunting. But my buddy, um, given what we had just seen was two days left to go, well at this point about a day and a half left to go was like, man, I need to figure out how to get back in that area and figure out where that monster that we saw came from. So he started doing some some topo map recon and was like, well, here's the finger that that buck chase, must have been chasing that doe down. He's like, I'm going to go get in there tomorrow morning. So at this point, I could, I, I could, I still had a doe tag left that I could fill. So I was, I was going to go out again. And I went out and I was sitting with him and he'd gone in another four or 500 yards the last morning of our hunt. And right as it's cracking daylight, I, I'll never forget this. It was super foggy. I mean, it was so foggy that there were ducks flying into the tops of the trees along the ridge that we were sitting on. I could hear them physically hitting the tops of trees. Huh. It's super foggy. I'd never, never seen, heard or seen anything like that before, but it was about six fifteen as it's cracking daylight. And I, I remember I grabbed my phone out to turn it and make sure it was on silent. And as I, as I saw it, I looked down, my buddy was calling me. I'm like, why is, why is Trey calling me right now? And I looked and I answered the phone. I'm like, hello. Hey, and it sounds like he's whimpering on the other end of the phone. I'm like, oh, no, did this guy, like, fall out of his tree? How am I going to get him out of here? I just think the worst-case scenario right off the bat. And he finally stutters out, I got him. I got him. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness. You got the one we saw? He's like, dude, I think it was that one, or it may have been a bigger one. And uh, he was just elated. Like I couldn't tell if he was crying or pumped up or just so shook up from, from the whole encounter that he was just, you know, couldn't talk. So I was like, no man, sit tight. So I, I got down out of my tree and, and, and hiked over to where he was down the ridge. And, uh, we found his arrow and, and started, started tracking the deer. And he's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I heard it crash down that ridge over there. And, and when I was on the phone with him, I had told him, Hey, you are not allowed to go down and look at that deer until I get over there. And I can go, I can go with you. I made the guy. I made the poor guy wait about an hour before I could get down and get over there, and we got over and started tracking the deer. And let me throw in there that I'm red green colorblind, so I can't I can't track my own deer. He's got to do it for me because I can't see the blood in the leaves. That's funny. So uh, yeah, we start we start tracking the deer, and he's going along step by step, picking up leaves and looking at the blood on them. But there's so much blood everywhere that I could see it. So I knew that this deer was just absolutely clobbered. And I'm like, Trey, you know that deer's dead. You need to you need to slip back over the ridge and just go look at the go 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 to see the thing down there. So he crept up over the ridge and there he was. It was a about a hundred and forty five inch nine pointer. Just an absolutely gorgeous buck. Awesome. Awesome. So we that was the year number one. Uh I shot a probably around a hundred and twenty inch ten pointer and he killed a hundred and forty five class nine pointer within about 500 yards of each other awesome awesome so then uh yeah. with with all that you know your first year you, you had success were the next two years any good they were so year two uh i did not get on a a shooter i had a i had a number of you know 120 minus type bucks that i saw but nothing nothing came within within range that I wanted to take. I didn't, I don't think I even laid eyes on a, you know, a, a Pope and young plus size deer. Right. Um, 
However, my buddy, he missed um, what we think is probably a booner. Oh, boy. Um, he, he saw it for 10 or 15 seconds, followed a doe right right under the tree that he was in, and somehow he, he, missed, the, he missed the buck of a lifetime at about 20 yards. I've done that before. Um, <laughs> yep. So he hasn't, he hasn't lived that one down, um, but recovered from it pretty well a couple nights later and, and shot probably uh, – it's probably one of the oldest bucks that I've ever seen. It was uh, just a big monster nine-pointer, that you, another nine-pointer that, that you could tell was, was going downhill in old age. Probably, a, again, a, a low 120s type deer. Um, but this buck was ancient. And, I mean, it was an old, old warrior of a deer. You could just tell. I mean, he had battle scars all over. That deer had a rut stink like, any, like no deer I've ever killed before. And uh, we actually dug out a, a section of about three inches of carbon arrow and a muzzy three-blade broadhead that had basically been completely encapsulated in scar tissue under this deer's spine. Oh wow! It was something else, and uh, the deer was the, the deer was so old it didn't even have it barely had any teeth. Wow, that's crazy! So they yeah, so they, that, they can definitely find places to hide out there. There is no doubt. Yeah, I mean, there's there's deer out at this place that you know probably haven't probably haven't seen people in in years. Wow, that's impressive. Just because some some of the areas are just so remote to access. Right. What about year three? So year three, uh, going into it, we felt obviously far more prepared than we had the first two, and and again that was the first year that I decided I was going to go out there and actually hang some cameras. Um, pre well, not necessarily preseason, but a lot earlier in the season, probably about, about a month and a half before we planned to go out and actually hunt for a week. And um, hung about six cameras and then checked them as soon as we got out there uh, late first week in November just to kind of get an idea of what was floating around some areas and got some pictures of some really, really nice deer, a couple, uh, a couple probably close to the 160 mark, a couple – probably in the 130 to 150 mark um, and and just kind of knew that those were the areas that we needed to key in on because we had some really, really nice deer on camera there. And I had, uh, I had two very, very good encounters. Well, I take that back. I had three very good encounters um, in the, and two of those were in the area that I initially started hunting. I had a right at, I mean, right at daybreak one morning, I, you know, when the, when the, when the big old nasty guy is walking through the woods, you know what that sounds like versus uh, a two and a half year old basket rack eight pointer. Um, I mean, I heard this guy sludging through the leaves and he came in through about 40 yards and was that kind of obscured by some, some really low cedars. And I grunted at him a couple of times and he did a, he did what those big guys do and circled downwind, made about an 80 yard loop around me and came into 40 yards right downwind of me. And I got a couple of glimpses of him then as he stepped out and it was a, it was a really, really nice deer. I don't know exactly what he was, but it, it was definitely a shooter. Um, and he, he ended up picking me off. Um, so that was, that was on like the first or second day of the trip. And, uh, so hunted that spot again, or in that same general area at least a couple more times without a whole lot of results. So I, I switched areas and went um, a couple miles away, basically up to the very, very tippy top of a, a, a ridge line where 
Um, there's just a tremendous saddle. And I hunted that area the first morning that I hunted it. I got up in a in a tree. It wasn't ideal. I was I was hunting out of a climber. And I got up only probably 12 to 15 feet was as high as I could get. But I had the wind just about perfect, blowing off the top of this big ridge, um, basically completely away from the, where the deer would be traveling. So I, was, I felt good about that. And uh, I, I was eating the north wind right, right in my face most of the morning. And it got to be about 8 o'clock. And I was like, man, I need to, I'm going to turn around for a little while and, uh, and, and basically face away from where I think the deer are going to come from. And I was sitting on the bar of my tree stand, basically facing away from where I thought the deer were going to come from. And I heard, finally heard a, I can't remember if I heard a, a stick crack or a grunt or something, but I turned around and all I saw was antler coming, coming right through this <laughs> narrow pinch on the top of this ridge line. Um, and, and this deer worked. I had about five seconds to figure out what I was going to do. And, uh, I think the deer was finishing up making a rub. He'd come in pretty, pretty quiet, especially with me facing the wrong way. And, um, all I saw was his head shaking a little bit with a bunch of antler on it. And I was like, Oh man, that is a big buck. I don't know how many points he has, but that is no doubt something that I want riding in my truck. And, uh, the way that he was, he was walking when I first saw him, I had a, I had a very short amount of time to grab my bow. So I grabbed my bow and managed to turn my GoPro on. And got the GoPro cut on just in time to draw. He got into an opening probably 33, 34 yards away. I grunted at him. He stopped and looked. And, and right as he stopped, I I, had, I think I had a little bit of target panic. And I, I touched off the release. And I watched my arrow go and hit a, just a little bit higher than where I wanted it to. But a little bit too far up into his shoulder blade. And I saw, I saw where the arrow hit and I thought there still may be a chance that I, that I got enough penetration to get the top of both lungs. And, uh, so I, I, I watched him run off and went back and, and downloaded the GoPro footage really, really quick onto my phone and watched that video on repeat probably 15, 20 times. And I was like, there's just, it's just hard to tell. I didn't, I didn't see the gear go down. I know I got, you know, minimal penetration. I just don't know. So. I, I sat up there for two or three more hours and then finally my buddy came over and, and hiked over to where I was and we started tracking the deer and, and saw that it was, uh, I had definitely got a little bit of a lung. Um, there was definitely some, some lung blood getting, getting snorted out and we tracked the deer and the blood just got sparser and sparser after about the first hundred, 200 yards. And he started going up some serious hills and we managed to follow him probably a probably a half mile or so before we completely lost it. And, uh, and that was that. And it, to this day, that is, that is the biggest deer that I've ever shot at. And I know that because I got a trail camera picture of him about a month and a half later. Yeah. So he, and it, it is, he's fine. Go ahead. He looked fine. Absolutely yeah. fine. Um, it is, it, it was a, just a giant, I mean, absolute giant, probably mid one forties, if not higher, eight pointer. Man, just uh, a just a brute. Man, I, I mean, love Coke, big eight pointers. I do too. Coke, I mean, Coke can size bases that and that mass. I mean, it just extends out. I'll shoot you the picture here in a little bit. Um, that mass extends out to the tips of his antlers. So, 
I will, you better believe I will have a camera on that pinch point as soon as I get out there to, to scout this year, probably mid to late September. And, and I can't wait to see what that deer, and I'm obviously hoping that he made it through. Right. And uh, I can't wait to see what he looks like this year if he, if he made it. Man. Well, I, I, so a little bit of follow up there. Yeah. A little bit of follow up there, too. I went out, I went, I made the eight hour trek back out there uh, about three weeks later and uh and grid searched that area for a solid two days and and never found him yeah um and that i was actually on that on that trip back out when i grabbed that camera and and got the picture of him gotcha okay so man for your sake i hope he's uh still around and he made it through all the gun seasons and the late seasons and he uh uh you run into him again man that'd be an awesome story that would be something else, especially on uh, a piece of public eight hours away from home. That's right. Now, real quick, do you? I mean, do you run into anybody else out there? Um, you know, maybe where you park, but out to where you're actually hunting. Sure. Uh, three years of, of hunting this piece of ground, I have seen exactly one other hunter in the woods. Wow. That's it. Wow. Uh, of my of my hunting party of this past year, there were three or four of us. There was uh, one, one encounter where one, one person in my group got walked in on by one other person and they weren't that far off the road either. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you guys have found a, a, a nice little area uh, to continue to go back to. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been, it's been great. It's going to be fun to do something different here in the, here in the near future. Right. But um, I think one more, one more season out there and, I think really this year is going to be our year and we're going to find something really, really nice. Absolutely. Now, what, one question I have for you, and this kind of goes back to you and your, your crew shooting and killing a deer. Do you guys get it processed there? How do you handle the actual meat uh, between, you know, the time that you're able to recover the animal to the time it's, you know, time to go back to, uh, to, to the, I guess, to your home state. Yep. So it, it starts at where we, where we kill the thing. And I mean, typically we're going to be pretty far back in and there's, there's not a lot of roads that, that are convenient to, to get your carts on or um, that you can actually drive on. There's no four wheeler use, anything like that out there. And um, so we, we've all basically a deer cart is your only prayer. And uh, so we, we always field dress the animal out there in the woods and then load it up on a deer cart. And, and try to, for the most part, stay on top of ridges and get out to the nearest road and let, let gravity help a little bit. Right. Um, then once we get it loaded up, take it back to, to the house that we're staying in, we'll hang it up and, and cape it out, uh, quarter it, skin it, cut the back straps out, and then we travel home with, with the bulk of the meat on ice. Gotcha. Okay. And then you, you finish the processing when you get it uh, get it home. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's, that's where it's nice actually having a, a, a brick and mortar house, um, where we can keep the, the the animal in a controlled environment, usually in like a garage and keep it on ice and, or hung up on ice and, and just, you know, make sure it's getting taken care of. (laughs) Do, do some of these, uh, homeowners know that you're bringing a dead animal onto their property? (laughs) 
Actually, most of them do. Uh, the guy that we've got that, that I got the house from last year, he actually outfits hunts on a family farm about twenty miles away from uh, gotcha. from where we're staying, and he lives on the same the same cul-de-sac. So he 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 is a hunter himself and and knows exactly why we're there, and is is completely understanding of it. So we luck out in that that regard, and and that's the house that we've booked for this year too. Awesome. Awesome. What about uh, any other states that you and you already mentioned kind of Nebraska and, and Kansas, but you know you're you're going to put one more year into this Kentucky. Have you already been doing any research on any other states or putting in for points in any other state? I haven't yet at this point. Uh, I've been kind of consumed with uh, with a move and, and getting into a house and renovating it and doing that sort of thing. Um, and knowing knowing where we're going this year, I haven't felt. Too, too much of a sense of urgency to do it um but just really in like the last week being in a being in a new area and, and getting back on this this onyx map kick of uh looking at at different private parcels around to try and get permission on i started wandering a little bit further west and further west and further west just kind of looking at at what parcels look like in in the northern kansas area and zooming over into Nebraska and looking at, at, at different land chunks there and things like that. So I'm starting to get the itch for it, but I haven't really taken any any serious action at this point. Awesome, man. Well, that about does it. Uh, you know, let me say uh, good luck this upcoming season, man. I hope you run into that uh, that big boy that you uh, hit but never found. Man, I appreciate it. I uh, I hope to. I hope I do as well, or uh, or something else of that caliber. But that was. Uh, that was a heartbreak if there ever has been one. We've all been there once or twice, and it's uh, it's something I don't want to do again, but, you know, it's hunting. That's absolutely right. Well, man, I really appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Dan. It was a good time. Huge shout-out to Clayton for coming on the podcast and sharing his knowledge information and stories with us today really appreciate that huge shout out to all of you for supporting the sportsman's nation and supporting nine finger chronicles man without you guys this does not exist so thank you very much and if you like it please go leave a review on itunes or wherever you download your podcast huge shout out to all the partners of the podcast exodus wasp lone wolf deer lab prime ripcord and hunter safety systems and ozonics huge shout out to all of those companies if you like this podcast please go out and support those companies because they support this podcast kind of comes around full circle there so thank you very much and if you haven't already please go to the sportsman's nation facebook and instagram page follow and like Also, all the other podcasts that are on the Sportsman's Nation podcast network on both the Whitetail and the Big Game feed. And I think that's it. Hopefully everybody has a great, great week. Please be kind to one another. Please put a little bit of focus into conservation. And with all that said, man, our friends at Hunter Safety Systems are reminding us all to please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.